thinking of a summer getaway? It's time to visit friends, family and the places you love with Stanoline. It's time to jump in the car and pack what you want without worrying about baggage charges. And it's time we welcome you on board where everything is just right. Or as we say in Sweden, la gom. Let us take care of the big little things that make every sailing spacious, stylish and safe. Get away to Britain or Europe from only €139 one way for a car and driver. Book today at stanaline.ie. How often in life do we get to do great things? Do we all get one moment or event of note? Or do we get a series of events where we are given the choice to act or not? And does our decision to do so or not to do so decide our legacy? Would you know when it's your time to seize opportunity? It's the life of a Dublin woman which answers these questions for us. This is her story. In Clansky, County Dublin, in 1890, a child was born. Her name was Dorothy Stopford. Dorothy was born into the world of privilege. Her father, Jemmet, was a civil servant of the British authorities in Ireland. He came from a long line of Church of Ireland clerics. Jemmet and those who paved the paths before him came from lives struggle-free. To have been important figures in the Church of Ireland meant that doors more often than not remained unlocked for them. Opportunities were on demand and request rather than as a result of wishing, praying and hoping. Dorothy's mother, Constance, was the daughter of Dr. Avery Kennedy, a master of the Rotunda Hospital. Another avenue of peace and effortless gain. Life was relatively blissful and without strain. This, however, changed as Dorothy turned 12. In her twelfth year, Dorothy's father contracted typhoid fever. The cost of his treatment in order to save his life burned a hole in the family's savings and soon they were left penniless. Jemmet failed to recover from the illness and as he died he left behind him his young family. He left them broke hopeless and fearful. As a method of survival, Constance sold the family home and they upped and left their home in Terranure for a new beginning in West Kensington, London. When the family moved to London, Constance sought out help from relatives. 
an aunt of Dorothy's was living in London at the time. A woman called Alice Stopford Green. Alice too had grown up in privilege, but her access to education had taken her on a different route to many of her peers. Alice had chosen to study Irish history as a young woman. The experience of doing so changed her being forever. Whilst studying, she began to learn the stories which were hidden from the ordinary people at the time. She learned about Emmett, Tone, O'Connell, McCracken, the brave pikemen of Wexford and the United Irishmen, the Irish brothers and sisters, both Catholic and Protestant, who stood together against the oppression of the Crown. She learnt of the history of the British Crown. She learnt of the palaces and castles they built on the graves of those deemed as peasants. She understood the practices used to enslave the free and blind the powerful. Alice quickly became anti-establishment and pro-nationalist as a result of her studies. She used her position within the high classes of society to publicly discuss her opposition to what the English colonies were doing in South Africa. She publicly supported Roger Casement's Congo reform movement. She wrote books explaining the threat of the British Empire to mankind. In 1908, she published a book called The Making of Ireland and Its Undoing. In 1914, she was very active in the movement of 1500 rifles into Hoth to arm Irish rebels against the Crown. As Alice's views and involvement in the Irish freedom movement grew, young Dorothy watched on closely. Influenced by her aunt, Dorothy began to listen to the stories Alice and her friends in the movement would tell. She learnt of the history of her land. She learnt of the pain of her people. She learnt of the horrors inflicted by the Crown. As Dorothy grew up in London, she worked very hard in school. When her school days ended, she first began working in the Charitable Organisation Society. This also gave her the opportunity to study a form of social science. Dorothy was also a very capable and talented artist. She used this talent to try and further her opportunities in life as she was granted an opportunity to study in the Royal College of Art. She chose not to accept this opportunity. Instead, in 1915, aged 25, she was granted a return to Dublin to study medicine in Trinity College.
through her aunt, she became friendly with a man called Sir Matthew Nathan, one of the key figures of the British administration of Ireland. During her holidays and breaks from study, she would often spend time in Sir Matthew's home, a lodge in Phoenix Park. The lodge today is now the home of the President of Ireland. During the Easter holidays of the year 1916, Dorothy and Ireland would change forever. On Good Friday, Dorothy recorded a day most mundane in her diary. She spent the day playing games with Nathan's nieces in his garden. She then read a novel in the evening and went to bed. The day was completely unremarkable. Nathan, however, had a bit of a stressful day. That day, he had been informed that a member of the British Empire's establishment, a knight of the realm, Sir Roger Casement, had been arrested on the coast of Kerry. He was on board a German boat in the middle of World War I and the boat was full of guns and ammunition. Saturday was just as mundane. Nathan stomped around the lodge stressed and with a demeanour that was to be avoided. Sunday was a little livelier. Nathan had to travel in and out of work in Dublin Castle for a series of meetings. Dorothy didn't quite know what was happening, but she and Nathan's nieces spent the day visiting friends around the city. For them, it was a perfectly normal day. When they returned to the lodge, they found that Nathan was still out at work so Dorothy and Nathan's sister-in-law, Estelle, decided to wait up for his arrival. When Nathan arrived back, he was in a foul humour but not overly stressed. A quick conversation about each of their days was shared and everyone went to bed. A peaceful sleep, a stressful sleep, a sleep without fear. Across the city, the children of Ireland struggled to sleep. There was nerves, fear and confusion in the air. They were on the eve of a glorious revolution. In the morning, Ireland would rise with the sun. Easter Monday, 1916, 2,500 Irish men, women and children marched out of their homes and took hold of Dublin. Across the edges of the Liffey, the rebels swarmed the city, claiming it in the name of the Irish people, free from oppression. War was declared and they awaited the arrival of the Empire. As the rebels began infecting the city with freedom, 
they captured the garrisons required to battle the British. Nathan was in Dublin Castle at the time the Rising began. The rebels managed to hold him here until reinforcements arrived and the rebels were pushed back. Across the city, in his home of privilege in the Phoenix Park, sat Dorothy. Dorothy awoke that Easter morning expecting it to be as mundane and eventless as any other. Happy and calm, partially boring, not too great, but not too bad either. Just a day. She had her breakfast and looked onto the park as an Easter weekend breeze touched her cheeks. The breeze was calm, relaxed and not worried about the day ahead. A breeze you can only truly appreciate on a bank holiday weekend. She read for a little bit that morning and as noon approached she began to think about lunch. The thought did not stay with her long. At twelve o'clock on that day of days, Dorothy shook as the sounds of bullets, screams of horror and the smell of death began to sweep across the city. A short distance from where she stood, near the forecourts, Irish rebels were attacking a British ammunitions convoy. At the same time, rebels were running up the steps of the GPO to claim it for Old Ireland. The city was being liberated. Dorothy and the others in the house scrambled together in the kitchen, fearful of what was happening outside. This fear remained with them for the next few days. Throughout the following days, they listened as rifles took lives and bombs reduced the city to rubble. They felt the booms of the Helga a warship which effortlessly swam up the Liffey to expel life from the rebels and the innocent. It didn't discriminate where it landed its bombs and began shelling the city. Each boom rocked Dorothy from the inside. It felt as though the city was experiencing a series of small, frequent and relentless earthquakes. It sounded as though Lucifer was rising. When the fighting ended and a level of calm under the eye of the British military came over the city, Dorothy and the others went to see for themselves what had happened. They saw that the city they loved had been reduced to rubble. The streets they had walked down as they shared stories with each other now had the bodies of young boys lying in them, never to rise again. The parks where they spent sunny afternoons were torn up by warfare. Blood now flowed where their joy once did. 
Dorothy was heartbroken and outraged by what had happened to her home. She blamed the rebels for causing this to happen. She understood her history, but didn't understand their need to enter into the horrors of war. Then her views began to change. As one by one the British began to execute the sons of Erin, Dorothy's anger took a new shape. She was seeing for herself the power of the Empire. She was seeing that it did not care for man, woman or child. It only cared for power. Her viewpoint had now changed. She once thought the rebels had caused the horrors. She now saw that the unjustified force of the crown had brought horror and death to her home. She saw that the crown had no interest in discussions or peace. She understood why the rebels had taken the fight to the British. They did not have the ears for reason and war was the only way to gain their attention. After the executions of the leaders, Dorothy was fully committed to her views of why they died. She understood why they marched to their deaths willingly. For a time, Dorothy didn't act upon her anger. She returned to college and in 1921 she graduated as a doctor from Trinity. Towards the end of her studies, she joined Common Naman, and as her knowledge of medicine grew, she shared this with volunteers, teaching them first aid and how to treat battle wounds should the need ever occur. After her graduation, she attained a job as a dispensary doctor in Kilbritton, a gateway village to rebel West Cork. In Kilbritton, she found it hard not to become involved with the rebels. They passed through here at night, seeking medical attention, and Dorothy would treat them all. Soon, they enlisted Dorothy as the medical officer to the local IRA brigade, as the rebels of West Cork took the fight to the British during the Irish War of Independence. West Cork was the battleground of Tom Barry as he placed the fear of God into the hearts of those who wore British uniforms. Tom sent his injured men to Dorothy for treatment as he trusted her. Whilst Dorothy wasn't directly involved in the fighting herself, she was often awoken by the sounds of guns in the hills in the distance and awaited the wounded to come to her door for help. When the War of Independence ended, Dorothy's efforts were not over as the Irish Civil War swept over the land. After 800 years of fighting the British, we turned our guns on each other. 
Dorothy remained a Republican and supported the anti-treaty side. When the guns were finally put down, Dorothy moved back to Dublin where she married a Wicklow man. District Justice and Historian Liam Price, a Free State man, a pro-treaty supporter. A relationship like this at the time was a rarity, as fathers, sons, brothers, mothers, daughters and sisters had turned guns on each other during the Civil War. They lived in Fitzwilliam Square together and Dorothy left her role with the IRA. When back in Dublin, she began to work in St. Alton's Hospital in Baggett Street. It was a job she had got through her friend in revolution, Kathleen Lynn. Her role in the hospital was to improve treatments. As part of this, she began to seek out a vaccination for tuberculosis. The disease was on a rampage through the slums of Dublin. She set out across Europe for a treatment. In Scandinavia, she encountered the pioneers of TB diagnosis and prevention. She learned what she could from them and listened as they described all their feelings in fighting the disease. They taught her how to test for TB and how to treat those who had it. She returned home and began testing straight away. As she did her tests, she found that many of those in the city slums had contracted TB and a form of immunity had built up. Those in the rural areas, however, had little to no exposure to it, and if they were to be exposed, it would power through their homes due to the lack of immunity. Against the wishes of the state and their masters in the church, Dorothy went to war again this time against them. She began importing the BCG vaccine and testing its effectiveness. By 1930, she published a series of journals and books which described its effectiveness and its ability to protect rural Ireland. She also saw a great need to vaccinate those leaving rural Ireland for the wider world as their immune systems were not built for the world's big cities such as London or New York. As a rarity for the time, she was one of the few medical testers who sought consent for her tests. After years of testing, in 1937, St. Alton's became the first hospital in Ireland and Britain to begin using the BCG vaccine. As a result of the effectiveness of the vaccine and the reduction of death rates as a result, she was nominated by the World Health Organization for the Leon Bernard Prize for Contribution to Social Medicine. In 1949, Dorothy was made head of the National Vaccination Programme. This role and her efforts to protect others took their toll on her, however, 
as in 1950 Dorothy suffered a stroke and failed to fully recover from it. In 1954 she suffered a second stroke which ended her time on earth. She is recognised today as the person who prevented the probable deaths of thousands in rural Ireland as a result of her work. She is recognised as the key reason childhood tuberculosis was eliminated in Ireland. Prominent professor and physician Victor Millington Singe said the following of Dorothy's legacy. To her, more than anyone else, is due the credit of introducing into Ireland modern ideas of preventative measures against tuberculosis. Few of the many thousands of children and young people who have been saved from death or tedious illness by BCG realise what they owe to Dorothy Price. Today's music was written, performed and produced by myself, Ryan O'Halloran. The story was researched and scripted by Oren. If you would like to support this podcast, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash we the Irish or leave us a review on your podcast app. Ryan is Anam Dunn, Gurav Mahagut, Slananish.